Welcome to the worship and work of Northminster Church. In fact, you could say that the worship we do in here is in order to work in the world out there. I mean, we proclaim a God of love in order for that love to reach out to a world in need. We proclaim a God of truth through whom all human truths are tested. We proclaim a God of peace in here to connect to what God is doing out there. So worship and work are one and the same. It's all playing catch up to God, to God who is already at work in the world. Let us worship with the words found in your bulletin. How good it is to gather in person and in spirit to worship and to praise God. God's wondrous, matchless, boundless grace is for all, especially for those who need. God restores hope to the hopeless. God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. God lifts up the downtrodden and casts pride to the wind. Let words of praise be on our lips. Let joy fill our hearts. For here in this place, God's holy temple is peace, grace, love, and blessed communion for all. Come, taste this, the finest of wheat. Be filled with God's bounty. Let us sing to God with thanksgiving. Let us make melodies of joy and harmonies of fellowship and love. Yeah. 
A reading from 2 Corinthians. As we work together with God, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the right time I have listened to you, and on the day of salvation I have helped you. See, now is the right time. See, now is the day of salvation. We are putting no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way, through great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God. With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, in honor and dishonor, in ill repute and good repute, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well known, as dying and see, we are alive, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken frankly to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open to you. There is no restriction in our affections, but only in yours. In return, I speak as to children, open wide your hearts. This is one of our sacred texts. Thanks, Thanks be to God.
Let us pray. God of grace and truth and tender mercy, we come before you bearing the burdens of this world. Heavy on our hearts is the standoff in the Ukraine with armed forces arrayed on both sides. Violence and bloodshed seem to be inevitable. O oh God of peace, Intervene with your power to heal divisions and settle disputes. We bring to you the burden of injustice. When good grieves and evil rejoices, tip the scales in favor of the good and break the grip of evil upon us. We bring to you all our concerns about calling a new pastor. Lead us to them and them to us by your ever-widening mercy. Together, O oh Lord, may we be the people of God we were meant to be. These things we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, world without end. Amen.
The sermon comes from the scripture, 1 Samuel 17. Notice it says selections. I've, I've gone through and I've selected uh, a lot of verses. I, I, try, I unselected a whole bunch, but then I select, ended up selecting a bunch more. You see, this is a story, and the way the biblical storytellers tell a story, all the component parts really have to fit together. So, uh, normally I wouldn't read this much scripture, but since it's R-rated for violence, you, you might pay more attention. 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They gathered at the Sokoth, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokoh and Azekah in Ephesadon. Saul and the Israelites gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and formed ranks against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. There came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Now his height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had greaves of bronze on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man of yourselves and come. let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in age. Well, his three eldest sons had gone to battle. David was the youngest and went back from forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. Now Saul and they, all the men of Israel, were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, took his provisions, went as Jesse had commanded him, and came to the encampment of the army who was doing battle forth in the lines, shouting the war cry. Israel and Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, David David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks, went to meet his brother. And as he did, the champion of the Philistines, Goliath, came upon the ranks of the Philistines and said the same words as before, and David heard him. 
David said to Saul, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. Saul said, David, said, David, you're only a boy. How could you go against a Philistine to fight with him? You are just a boy. He's been a warrior from his youth. Well, David finally convinces him, and so Saul says to David, Go up, and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk because he was not used to them. Picture this comedic scene, folks. David with all this armor walking around. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk in these. I am not used to them. And so he removed them. And he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in the shepherd's bag and the pouch his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came <clears throat> on and drew near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Sword and spear and javelin, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. When the Philistine drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. This is the R-rated part, folks. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking him down and the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, he grasped his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him. Then he cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of the word and increase its understanding in our hearts. Amen. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I grew up with my parents having a lot of sayings. I find myself saying some of my parents' sayings and it kind of, gosh, gets me. My dad was full of sayings. He was full of it. He was full of a lot of things. And <laughs> saying, sayings were one of those things. He's passed away a dozen years ago but, ago, but his sayings haven't passed. Now, most of the sayings are too colorful for proper pulpit proclamation, but let me try a few. He used to say <clears throat> to me, Son, you're always letting your mouth overload your hind end. Of course, he didn't say hind end. No. He would say, Son, you've got more guts than a government mule. <laughs> I had never measured the guts of a mule working for the government, but I guess I knew what he meant. I came home from college. One of the first times I came home, he looked at me and he said, Boy, 
I wish I could buy you for what you're worth and sell you for what you think you're worth. <laughs> that one still stings. <laughs> he never finished high school, but his homespun wisdom sure came in handy. Like one of the times I was getting picked on at school. Now, I wasn't particularly small. Believe it or not, I was scrawny. I have pictures to prove it if you don't believe it. The problem was my name. When your name is Cluck, you are asking for it. The bullies would make clucking sounds, call me a chicken, and worst of all, the merciless use of the moniker, Dumb Cluck. I was getting into fights at school on a regular basis. Now, I know those of you who know me now can't believe that. I'm such a sweetheart. But in those days, I got into a fight. Now, I wasn't much of a fighter, so my fights consisted of this. The bully taunted me, called me dumb cluck. I turned around and got knocked to the ground. Now, the school called my dad, and my dad sat me down, schooled me about school. Next time they call you dumb cluck, he said, you say this, and he whispered something in my ear. Now, I couldn't wait until the next day to go face the bullies. And sure enough, I did not have to wait long until the chance of dumb cluck started. I pulled myself together and said what my dad told me to say. Yeah, if it weren't for us dumb clucks, you eggheads wouldn't be here. Now, that really sounds corny, you know, now. And I braced for a punch. But the bullies must have been impressed because they left me alone over their shoulders saying, good one, Cluck. From my father's wisdom, I learned a witty retort beats fighting every time. And it's much less painful. You see, the bullies were bigger, stronger, meaner. I was the underdog, but I survived on my wits and wiles. Today's text is the quintessential image of the underdog who overcomes. By any rational measure of success, David didn't have a chance. The foe he faced was a giant. Some sources say he was nine feet tall. His armor alone weighed 125 pounds. His spearhead was probably bigger than David's head. David's handlers tried to prepare him for battle, suiting him in Saul's armor. He can't do it, can't walk in it. Obviously, this is folklore, nationalistic folklore of Israel. And it kind of reminds you of the George Washington cherry tree stories. You see, the story is more than true. It is truth telling us who we are. Israel could only survive by trusting in God the way David did. David, armed with only a few smooth stones and a slingshot, defeats the mighty Goliath and saves his people from oppression. The story, though familiar, is not altogether comfortable for us. We don't relish the thought of a Judeo-Christian beheading, but here it is in all its graphic detail. And we teach our kids this story? The truth is greater than the true to life at the time details. The truth found in the text is a truth found throughout Scripture. God is the God of the underdog. 
God is partial to those who have little or no chance in this world. could be said that the Bible is a record of God's fight for the underdog. Even the term underdog comes from fighting, dog fighting. In the 19th century, the term was coined to refer to the loser of a dog fight. The losing dog would lay down, sometimes barely alive, sometimes not alive, and the winning dog would stand over it, making the losing dog literally the underdog. You see, God fights for the defenseless, the outmatched, the outgunned. The wandering Aramean named Abraham fighting as a stranger in a strange land. Isaac fighting for life on the altar of sacrifice. Jacob, the secondborn, fighting for the rights of the firstborn. Joseph fighting against his brothers who are trying to destroy him. The children of Israel fighting for survival against the Egyptian dynasty, fighting for the promised land. The prophets fighting to be heard amidst the intrigues of kings and kingdoms. The Maccabees fighting an all-consuming Hellenistic juggernaut. Jesus fighting the religious and political establishment of his day. The early church fighting the mighty Roman Empire. You see, God has been fighting for the underdog all along. And maybe that's why everybody loves the underdog. Empirical, sociological, and psychological research reinforces this biblical principle. Research shows that people root for the underdog. The studies show why. Justice. People want to see everyone get a fair chance. God's prejudice in favor of the underdog is precisely that. God works to provide a fair chance for everyone. And God's people are called to do no less. Do your own survey. Literature, movies, TV, sports. You'll see the underdog archetype again and again. The child champion in literature, the loser who becomes the winner in movies, the anti-hero who acts heroically in TV, the lousy ranked team at the start of the season winning the championship. Go Joe Burroughs, go. (laughs) What does it feel like to be the underdog? Perhaps a more moving depiction of the underdog can be found in the Janice Ian song at 17, which Debbie's going to sing for you now. I learned the truth at 17. Love was meant for beauty queens. And high school girls with clear skin smiles Who married young and then retired The Valentines I never knew The Friday night charades of youth Were spent on one more beautiful At seventeen I learned the truth Those of us with rabid faces Lacking in the social graces Desperately remained at home Inventing lovers on the phone Who called
call to say, come dance with me, and murmured vague obscenities. It isn't all it seems, it's seventeen. A brown-eyed girl in hand-me-downs Whose name I never could pronounce Said pity please the one who serves They only get what they deserve The rich related hometown queen She marries into what she needs a guarantee of company and haven for the elderly. Remember those who win the game, they lose the love they sought to gain in differentures of quality. And dubious integrity The small town eyes will gape at you In dull surprise when payment's due Exceeds the amount received at seventeen To those of us who know the pain Valentines who never came And those whose names were never called When choosing sides for basketball It was long ago and far away The world was younger than today And dreams were all they gave for free for ugly duckling girls like me We all play the game And when we dare To cheat ourselves It's solitaire Inventing lovers on the phone Repenting other lives unknown They call and say Come dance with me and murmur vague obscenities at ugly girls like me at 17. You know what it's like to be the underdog. If you're black in a land where black lives don't matter, if you're gay or lesbian in a society that says only straight is right, if you're transgender in a world which limits your reality to biology, if you're a woman in Louisiana making 58 cents on the dollar for the same job a man does, if you're over the hill and headed down fast without any brakes, if you're underprivileged, underserved, under the radar, many of us know what it feels to be like the underdog. As young people facing the giant of big impersonal education, as workers facing the giant of big soulless corporations, as citizens facing the giant of government led by only those who are in it for themselves, 
as patients fighting the giant of illnesses of gargantuan proportions. As senior citizens facing the giant of aging which has taxed the body, the mind, and the spirit so ruthlessly. We know what it feels to live as underdogs in a world that rewards top dogs. In a world that teaches that lovers are losers and only the ruthless can win. But hear the good news this morning. God is in your corner. God fights with you, in you, through you. God fights for you. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't take a punch or few. It doesn't mean that you'll come out of the fight without a black eye or two. However, it does mean that if you trust God, the strength you have will be a strength beyond your own. It means when you think you can't go on, by God you can. It means by trusting in God, what looks like the end can be the beginning. I'd like for the sermon to stop right there, but the text won't let us. The text this morning will not let us go before we answer another question, maybe even more troubling. Not when have you been David the underdog, but when have you been Goliath, the oppressor, the soldier of oppression? When have you used your power to put or keep others down? When have you been complicit in crushing the powerless for your own gain? When have you looked the other way when the system ground the underdog down? When have you taken advantage of the disadvantage just because you could? When have you hidden behind the armor of wealth, education, or social standing in the face of those who had none of the above and needed your help? God forgive us of our Goliath monstrosities and make us one with the underdog. No, I know next to nothing about dogfighting, boxing, or wrestling. Don't care to know. Yet these images are needful for our understanding this morning. The underdog can overthrow the top dog. David did defeat Goliath. The underdog can beat the count, be it ten in boxing, three in wrestling. The underdog can beat the odds. You see, life is a fight. And in this fight, God is partial to the underdog because God is the God of justice. God fights to level the playing field and give everyone a fighting chance. God's people are a part of that fight. God's people are to fight for the underdog, the oppressed, the dispossessed. God's people are in the world to make the world safe for the underdog. For God is fighting for the underdog and transforming that underdog into a champion. The God of the underdog is with us when we are underdogs facing overwhelming odds. The God of the underdog is with us when we fight for the underdog facing giants only God can overcome. May the Lord add blessing to the reading and hearing of the word. Amen.
Now let us say the prayer. 